Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. They all come from the unknown north. Talent, drive, and a pride worth paying for. But just because they're above the 49 parallel, it doesn't mean we shouldn't celebrate them just as well. So give it up to these gunners. Because our self-promotion sucks And if they all went away We sure would miss them The Canadian star system Hello and welcome back to the Canadian Star System, a podcast where we speak with some of Canada's most talented people and try to figure out what makes them so good and what makes Canada so bad at celebrating our own. Each episode, our star not only shines, but also shines their spotlight on another talent who they know is a star worthy of wishing the best of success. I'm your host, Steve Patterson, and with me as always is my producer, Diana Francis, who hopefully by the time this episode airs, I get to see in person again. How are you doing, Diana? Steve, I'm doing very well. I must be honest. I say this almost every week, but I am very excited about today's guest. Why is that? Probably one of the most exciting parts of producing this podcast is... It's making sure, sorry, I'll cut you off, making sure that I show up on the right day and the right time of the interview, because that's that's not a given. Yeah, no, that would be fun if it ever happened. The most fun part of this podcast for me is booking the guests, because frankly, the first people I reach out to are some of my favorite Canadians. Yes. So today's guest just happens to be my absolute favorite musician of all time. Oh, we did it. We got Jim Cuddy. Yes, the future ex, Mr. Diana Francis. You know, I actually met Jim once at a fundraiser show. He was very kind. Yep. we have not gotten Jim Cuddy yet. But this guest that we're about to interview said yes to me, so currently he is my absolute favorite. (laughs) Speaking of saying yes, I got not engaged to my real-life boyfriend at our guest's concert in Red Deer. Last year. Uh, How do you get not engaged? What does that even mean? Well, we were pre-drinking in the hotel in Red Deer before the show. We were having just a great night and like being completely in love with each other. And we agreed. We realized that like we could totally spend the rest of our lives together, but neither of us want to get married. So we got not engaged. We were like, oh, my God, did you just not engage, uh, get engaged to me? Oh, my God, this is so sweet. You just didn't propose. And then we had the best (laughs) night ever watching our upcoming guest in Red Deer. (laughs) Well, first of all. Thank you for making it so that I don't have to get you an engagement present because a non-engagement- well, I didn't say that. Okay. I didn't say that. Okay. Second Still of me all, a present. Second of all, it is ironic given how engaging our guest is. <laughs> I'm going to take this. He is making things happen. And he is, in all honesty, one of the best, hardest working, and kindest musicians that Canada has to offer the world. He is a multiple Juno Award winner that packs concert halls wherever he goes. So if you see he's coming, get your tickets immediately. Otherwise, you are a fool for waiting. (laughs) I mentioned he's kind, but more than that, 
He's nice, nice, very nice. Very and nice. And he's so cool, he can make you have a cold in the summer. He is Dan the Man, Man Gan. Dan! Yay, Hello, Dan. hello, hello. You guys, well, you know, you didn't tell me that you were going to give me such a nice intro before. You know, you make it easy so because now I'm you're such caught a, off guard. You're such a nice person. I and Diana's got this weird obsession with Jim Cuddy, but uh, I who doesn't? I had the fortune of something that you were kind enough to do for us last year. You serenaded just me, Dan, and mm-hmm. I don't know how many men have, can say that have that honor that they've been serenaded by you. Yeah, I'll do it again. <laughs> do it right now if you want. Weirdly, that sounded like a threat. Yeah, yeah how do you exactly. make that sound like a threat? I'll serenade you. You care for what you wish for, Steve Patterson. (laughs) (laughs) We share this weird venue bond that before the pandemic shut everything down in 2020, I was at the Danforth Music Hall. We were taping episodes of The Debaters. I finished that taping, got in a plane, flew to Vancouver, where you're from. We passed each other in the sky. You were flying to Toronto. We high-fived out the plane, which in hindsight, (laughs) dangerous. You went to the Danforth Music Hall. You had two sold out shows lined up. I believe you did the first one. And then the second one, they shut everything down. No audience allowed. So you were able to record a video concert in the Danforth with no audiences. Is that right? That was the beginning of live shutdowns. Am I correct there? Yeah. And so, you know, we played the first night. It was magical. It was great. It was sort of like the last night on earth. Everyone knew (gasps) we were not going to be able to do this. Sure was. I was there, Dan. I was there. You were? I was. It was so special. I'll never forget that night. And the next morning, of course, we wake up and the mayor had sort of said, okay, no more gatherings. It's all shut down. And all our gear was still there. And like when you, this is like a rare, you know, when you're used to loading out every night, which is the worst part of touring, (laughs) the idea of having a two night stand is so great because you just leave all your gear on stage. You don't have to do a thing and you can show up the next day for sound check and it's all there. You don't have to to set it up again either. And so at like 5 p.m., we all show up at the venue and we're like, this is so sad. Like we still have to load out all our gear is here. The gig's not happening. So Don, uh, Don Kerr, amazing drummer, institutional Toronto musician, was like, why don't we just get some friends down here and we'll play to them uh, and they can record it. And then we'll just like put it on online for people or whatever. And that was, so that, it was interesting because at, at that time that was like, that's a weird idea. Huh. You know, looking back a year later, it's so commonplace to have an online show. And this was just like for free, you know, we just, we put it out on the following Monday and edited it all together. What was remarkable is I, I did like the YouTube premiere function thing at the time and you could chat with people as it's playing. So even though I'd seen it before, it was like a little 28 minute performance. I was watching it with other people and chatting with them and giving them cracking jokes and you know behind the scenes, whatever. And it was the beginning of this moment. Like I realized, oh wait, online experiences can be good. And even if it's pre-recorded content, if it feels like it's unfurling, like unrolling and unfurling in real time with people and that at the end of the experience, you feel like you still experience something that was like um, visceral and uh, uh, what's the word? Like it ended and it was over, like, like right. it was fleeting. That like the nature of like what makes a gig so special is that it's fleeting. It's, it ends and then it's over. Part of the problem with the online content world was like, it's just always available. Right. So nothing is scarce anymore. As I got deeper into online shows, carrying that feeling of like, how do we make this scarce? How do we make it fleeting? How do we make it spontaneous and real? And that's, you know, really infused. And that experience really sort of like was the beginning of, of an online adventure that I had no idea that I was about to undertake. 
you are a pioneer. We're going to talk a lot about side door access. I love it. You've hinted at it here, but I, I just want to touch base with you quickly because here we are over a year from that night now that we had to stop doing live performances in full venues in Canada. Now there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Things are are opening up slowly but surely. How much are you looking forward to it? We're going to talk oh, about the great things you've done with online performances, but what what do you miss most about the live performances and 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 how much are you looking forward to getting back? When I think of like my favorite moments of a show, I think of those moments of silence where you have like a thousand or two thousand people all in a room. Maybe there's like a long held note and then like before you resolve it or something, there's just like sometimes mid song or like in between songs, there's moments of a couple seconds of pure silence across a room that has thousands of people in. And those moments of, whoa, we're all here together, like Mm. even more than like rowdy cheering and stuff like that. It's like, no, 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 we are all focused on this moment together. Everyone is paying attention. We are all participating in something where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I miss that so much. I can't like, now that it's been taken away from us and we've all realized how deeply we need it, I think that I'm just going to cry like every show (laughs) from here on out. As an audience member who's been in a couple of your recent shows, Dan, that silence that you're talking about that you do in that last, what is the song that you do that you usually close with? Uh, So much for everyone. Yes. Where you come into the audience and you're standing on a chair and somebody's holding that light above you and you're singing a cappella and you get all of us to do the harmonies. The way that it just completely connects the audience, it just literally makes you feel like you are all hooked up to the same electrical source. Mm. And it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Well, thank you. I feel like over the years that trying to get there is exactly like for a long time, I always thought about like musical perfection. Like I wanted the show to be perfect and the songs to be executed well. And like that there, that's the whole point. Like the songs are just like a way to get to that feeling and that feeling of interconnectedness and like literally all of all of your voices, all of our voices in the room at that moment are all literally those energy waves are going through our bodies and reverberating and we're tuning to each other. You become like a beehive, like an organist. Yeah, I'm tone deaf, but when I am singing those harmonies, I'm like, I'm the best singer in the world here. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. No one's happier that thousands of people are drowning out Diana than you, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I miss those moments of silence in live shows too. They're usually right after I deliver a punchline. There's just everyone <laughs> looks at each other and, oh, is that the funny part? Okay. Listen, yeah. <laughs> during this pandemic, I, I can't think of a... Another artist in Canada who has done more to stay active, to foster that sense of community than yourself with Side Door Access, with the founding Side Door Access, first of all. And if we can touch base quickly on what Side Door is for those who might not know, but, mm-hmm. but then let's you know, move on beyond it because I'm, I'm so impressed by the, what you did for artists, especially musicians, and saying, look, you're valued. This is a concert. This is a real concert experience. People will buy tickets even though they can't go Gladly. to venues yeah. right now. You you put that value on Canadian art that I think not everyone was doing and is so much deserved. So could you just describe Side Door, please, quickly? First of all, thank you. So I'll, I'll start with the very beginning. Side Door, sort of like Airbnb for shows, you know, <laughs> any space is a venue. You can sign up your warehouse or your backyard or your gazebo or your bookstore. Yeah, you match with artists, you connect with artists in the in the platform. You build shows together. You can, you know, each show can have a unique revenue share where you split and you sell tickets and it gets held in escrow. And then after the show, those funds get dispersed automatically into everyone's bank accounts based on the pre-negotiated split. It's basically, it's, it's a marketplace 
global marketplace for spaces and artists and audiences to to connect and find each other. As the pandemic hit, it was, you know, we thought we were sunk in that we had created a platform of book gathering and that was the one thing that we could not do. <laughs> and so, you know, I think like a week or two into the pandemic, I'd been playing on Instagram Live and one day I was like, what if we just did it over Zoom? You know, we all know this app now, we all are using it. And so I started doing a weekly show and Sidedoor having its own ticketing, I just used Sidedoor to ticket Zoom. And of course, at the beginning, it wasn't secure. People could share the link and it sounded really bad because I hadn't figured out the Zoom app for Fidelity and stuff. But the, at the end of that first show, it felt amazing. It was like, oh my God, like I just, un and midst, like in between songs, I would just like see somebody on the screen that was interested, interesting and I'd unmute them and I just talked to them. And so I was like talking to people in like Indonesia and, and Brazil and Ecuador and people that they've been waiting 10 years to see me come to their town and I never did. And so now <laughs> here we're having a forum and it felt amazing. And at the end of it, like when I pressed, you know, end meeting, I was like, whoa, I kind of feel like I just got off stage. Right. Like I just had that rush, the same feeling. And so that infused into what we eventually did, which is we've run over 900 online shows on Side Door, mostly over Zoom. But then we also built another lane. So we have like our interactive lane, which is a secure ticketing portal for Zoom. And we have our broadcast lane, which is a more traditional kind of live stream uh, function, you know, with the player embedded on the page and the chat and the tipping. And so now as we sort of return to in-person shows, now there's sort of like three types of shows on Side Door. One is the in-person show, the initial concept, and then the two online types. And the cool thing is that they can inter intermingle. So you can do an in-person show in like a weird bespoke venue, like in an auto body shop or something, and then stream it and ticket the streams so that you can continue to sell tickets beyond what the capacity of that venue is. And you can even like geogate those tickets so that only people in that market can, can have access to it and stuff like that. There's lots of features, lots of tools that we've built. But essentially, the why behind Side Door is we're trying to create a worldwide middle class of artistry, like carpenter trade. You know, I want 100,000 artists that you've like barely or never heard of to make $100,000 a year doing what they love such that they can quit their day jobs, they can put two feet on the train and put all of their focus into the art and into performing. And I believe that that will not only create a more robust like world economy of the arts, but it will create a more diverse artistic marketplace where people are willing to take risks and, you know, do the thing that they love and that they can still make a living doing. I did my first online comedy show on Side Door, and I believe it was your, the first comedy show you guys had had at the time. It was, yeah. I mean. And I had a way better time than I thought I was going to doing comedy because of the interactive features. As you say, you could watch the people watching your show. So it's it's kind of a virtual front row. And as a performer, I watched, your, I watched one of your concerts. I watched a Sarah Sleen concert. And it was like being in the front row of a concert, really, because it's so yeah. tight and intimate. And it's like the show is a serenade to just you, which not many people would have to know what that's like. But I did, Dan, because mm. you had already serenaded <laughs> just me. It was all I had for you. And the other, element, <laughs> the other element I love is the ease with which artists can support causes that they want to support through a, a percentage of ticket sales or that charitable aspect of it. Can you talk, can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. So the initial kind of interesting like behind the scenes tech that Sidedoor built in the first place was that we needed to be able to collect money, hold it in escrow, and then pay out multiple parties on the show. And so that, you know, it just as like, a, you know, if you erase all the cool marketplace features of Sidedoor, that was just like a ticketing component that we had. And so 
what we realized as we got into online shows was, okay, well, we have the capacity for a, a host and an artist to connect and put a show on together. And so what previously was reserved just for like venues, you know, spaces, backyards, bookstores, whatever, could now be charities. And so what we had is we had a bunch of charities come on as host profiles. They would connect with artists right in the in the app, book the shows together, and then that charity could take, you know, 10% or 20% or whatever of the revenue. And what's cool on Side Door is that when you buy a ticket, you can actually expand kind of like a pie chart, like at the gas station, you can expand the little ticket widget to show you exactly where every penny is going. So you could see like, of my $20, this much is going to the artist, this is much is going to the charity, this much is going to Side Door, this is much going to Hero, like we pay out SOCAN and, yeah. and performing rights organizations automatically. We're really trying to do the heavy lifting and remove all of the annoying things mm. that make touring and being a you know a performing artist hard it's like the anti-ticket master <laughs> it's yeah i mean like I, i've explained it like you know there is a squeeze on the side of ticketing that is like who can squeeze the consumer the most with the least amount of kickback like who can be the the best fiercest bad guy in ticketing hmm. there's like a lot of there's like 500 companies trying to do that but there is a vacuum on the good guy side of ticketing <laughs> huh. where it's like how can a platform or how can the experience of buying a ticket make you feel like a patron and like a community member more so than a consumer? And so we've infused a lot of that into the platform. And part of that is just, I've spent 15 years touring. I've seen so much of the ugly stuff. And I've also seen a lot of amazing things happen. Like my first show in Calgary was to four people at the Ironwood, lost money on the show, bless the Ironwood for letting me go. And then the second show in Calgary was at this guy Doug's backyard. <laughs> and it was me and Laurie Matheson. There's like 60 people there and they don't know who I am, but they know Doug <laughs> and they just show up for Doug. And like, Doug's like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to book a band. Come on, everyone party at my house. And it was amazing. I had the best time, sold a million CDs and made a, made way more money and high fives. And it was just like, Oh my God. Like, I don't, it's not the venues that I need. It's, it's Doug. It's like, he's my Trojan horse <laughs> into each market. You and, just need uh, a Doug in every city. Everybody needs a Doug. I need a Doug in. <laughs> that's right and i literally that's what i would say to myself is i just need to find a doug in every city and i can have a viable career in music and those early days it's so hard to get into the funnel like the gatekeepers you know and they're not evil they're good people you know i've since met them but agents and promoters and and labels and and managers and stuff like they, they're gatekeepers to this magical orb of in music industry or performing arts industry and the truth is that if it all comes down to the fact that there's only so many venues and those venues need to be full to survive but what if there was 100,000 venues in North America and most of them were doing it just for the love of it? Like what kind of cool marketplace of community arts could we, how, how could we decentralize the entertainment industry from being that you can only play in these six clubs in the downtown core of a city into like, well, there's 26 boroughs of Chicago that all have more than 50,000 people. In my mind, there should be 200 venues in those 26 boroughs. That you can go and play. It seems like such a, I don't want to say s simple, you know, because it's a big thought, but it's such a great way to harness it, get the music to the music lovers, cut out uh, any red tape that you can along the way. And your, uh, I believe, co founder is it, Laura, out in Nova Scotia, mm -hmm. Laura Sampson. Yep. I mean, in the East Coast, that's just a thing. House concerts are just yeah. a thing, right? You you go to a house party, there's a good concert going on in the kitchen. In, <laughs> in Ontario, yeah. if the guy brings out a guitar, you it's often time to leave the party. But in Nova <laughs> Scotia, I mean, that's going to be a bonafide good show. So 
it seemed organic there. And it seems like, you know, the, the West Coast has that camaraderie in the music industry. The East Coast has it. Central Canada didn't have it as much. But now I think because of what we've gone through in the past year, I think that everyone's realizing you have to do what you can. And I think that Side Door is going to continue to be a complement to live shows moving forward. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, that's awfully our goal. I, I picture being on tour and having a day off like next Thursday and I sit down for lunch and I go on my phone. And I'm like, oh, who, what venues do we have in Dayton, Ohio? And then I go and I like zoom in on Dayton and I look at a few places and I message them. And then by the time lunch is over, I book myself a show for next Thursday. Booking yourself a show and finding a space and working with hosts, it, it could be that easy. And oftentimes, you know, like in the tech, it's been, it's been a big roller coaster learning about the tech world and being a tech founder is not the thing that I cut my teeth doing. Right? I cut my teeth <laughs> in the corner of like, you know, patio Flaherty's in Sarnia or whatever. Like, I know that. Trying to get to my brother used to manage it. Truth story. And so, you know, it's been a crazy learning experience. But the truth is that like you have to picture it in your mind before it seems obvious to everybody else. And to me, this is crystal clear, like what a world this could be and what a platform side door could be. And so, you know, often as a, as a founder of, of a startup, you are picturing something that doesn't exist. And then you're like trying to eliminate all of the things that are stopping it from existing. One of those is you have to raise funds, you have to get investors, you know, which is a whole other thing. Essentially, like in my mind, it's really obvious that mm -hmm. side door should just be an asset for any artist in the whole world. But, you know, making sure that it doesn't suck and making sure that there's good customer service and making sure we're building the right features before we run out of money, you know, like all of these things are part of the, the founder crisis. And uh, I had no idea. I had no, <laughs> I had no understanding of this a couple of years ago. And I've just been thrown like head, headlong into it. On behalf of all artists, if I can, thank you for doing that because not all artists would think to do that and would have the wherewithal or, or just the ability to move their brain because it is a different side of your brain, I think, than performing mm -hmm. and doing the show is all of those things that you're thinking about and, and most artists don't, don't want to. So, thank you very much for doing that. Yeah, I mean, thank you. Well, and luckily, I, it's something that I've always kind of had an ear for. Like I've always been really hands-on in the business before I had management and label and all that stuff. I did it all myself. Like I was booking myself tours in Europe back, you know, in the early, early days. And my understanding was like, if I know how to do this, then by the time I'm at a level where somebody else will do it for me, I will know if they're doing a good job and I will know if they're not doing a good job. And so, you know, I didn't know how to make a website. I taught myself how to make a really simple website. And I, I've always had that sort of like um, obsessive compulsive Thing of like if there's something if there's a project that I really want to finish I will stay up until four in the morning finishing it and I just like I won't eat for 10 hours like I get very obsessive and very intense so this is sort of in a way it's scratching an itch for me because I've always kind of I don't I want to say enjoyed the business side of music because it's kind of sucked <laughs> but at the same time I've always had a knack for it listen we're gonna get into a, a pretty deep topic here that we can't possibly get to the bottom of right now. But as we're recording this, and I truly hope this is still a front page story that we are discussing when this is being heard, we are learning of the tragic findings in Kamloops, in the BC uh, residential school, of the remains of 215 Indigenous children that were taken. You've been very vocal 
in trying to support that and trying to bring attention is being brought to it now, but in in trying to, you know, educate individuals on where they can go for more information and what they can do. What do you think is the one main thing that we as individuals can do to be part of that solution? I know it's not an easy answer, but I also know that waiting for our government to act has not been fair to anyone. Yeah. And first of all, like, I want to acknowledge that as a white dude posting about all this stuff, like, it's hard because I would not want to feel like I was speaking for anybody else. Or that like white savior syndrome. But what I do want to speak to, A, is that there is like a task list of things that we can do that will help. You know, the 94 recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, that's a start. And other things like, you know, ensuring that deep, thoughtful, conscious knowledge and education of the residential school system is in place in every curriculum, in every school across the country. When I was a kid, we didn't learn about any no, of this. Neither did I. It wasn't until I was in university and I took a course about indigenous literature that I even knew what a residential school was. It was just like this wasn't part of the conversation. And so my plea, and you know, the second you get really vocal about a topic like this, you get weird trolls in the comments going like, "Well, don't blame all white oh, people. Gosh, it wasn't what a, me." What a ridiculous you know? thing to troll. <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, and, and I, my response is like, this isn't about like blaming no. you specifically. This is about like, what kind of country do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a country that waves the flag and pretends that this didn't happen? Or do you want to live in a country that waves the flag because you're proud that you have gone and tried to resolve this terrible, 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 atrocious. And in my last post, I called it, this is Canada's Holocaust. Like that's, you know, it is, it is our deepest, darkest, it's no longer a secret, but deepest, darkest wound in our country's history. So wouldn't we be a better country? If we forensically investigated and made deep, deep reports of what the findings are at every single one of these schools, 215 kids were just found at Kamloops. That's, That's the point. first school they've done, they've done a dig yeah. at. So we should do all 200 of these schools. We should have a detailed report. We should spend as many millions of dollars as it requires. And there should be museums dedicated to this. We should, be under, we should understand this crisis and this tragedy in the same way that the Holocaust is treated in Germany, in that like it is a deep and well understood part of the of the country's history, and thus we can grow beyond it. We can heal these wounds. Some low. I mean, I don't. If I was a member of the indigenous community, and my parents had to attend one of these schools, and simply wouldn't talk to me about the first eighteen years of their life because it's too traumatic and painful, I would be angry. And guess what? They would be angry too. And I, I, that's that's the crazy thing. Is it like? People get defensive, like, well, don't blame me right. for this. And it's like, I'm not blaming you for what literally happened. I am saying it is your responsibility to not blindly right. wave the flag mm-hmm. without understanding what waving that flag means to people who live in this country who suffered so deeply at the hands of our own government and at the church. And it, ins- it isn't ancient history at all. Last residential school closed in 1996. This it- is not. This right. is not before Canada became a country or anything. This is I mean, too recent. Tanya Tagak. Yes. You know, Polaris winning, amazing, incredible artist, Tanya Tagak, went to a residential school. I actually didn't know um, that. I'm gonna know, I'm gonna read more of that. I didn't know I didn't know that. And that's, you know, just just one name out of the like I mean the, it's endless. And I, I when I was a kid, I just didn't no. know. I didn't know, you know, and I would take the bus 
and sometimes at the back of the bus there'd be people drinking and the first nations and i just didn't but of my god like if three or four generations of your family were subjected to full childhood of trauma and abuse and then kicked out and then had kids and then their kids were taken from them and then they were subjected to the same thing you know several generations of trauma and dna and pain i can't even begin to articulate what a debt we have you're absolutely right and i just hope that everyone does the research individually starts there it stops with the denial yeah let's let's lighten it if we can dan you did a pandemic project called thief where you did a bunch of covers mm -hmm. of some great songs from various different genres my only question to you, Dan, and it's great and everyone should listen to Thief. Why is it that musicians can do covers of other musicians and everyone's like, that's great. But when a comedian does someone else's jokes, Ooh. they're a hack. Why, Dan? Why, Dan? <laughs> I think that's a good question. <laughs> I think that it has to do with musicians. I, and I'll say what I think makes a good cover yes. is making it your right. own. I think like as much as I love Weezer, a perfect example of a terribly done cover is their cover of Toto. They just copy <laughs> and pasted the whole yeah. song and then had a different person sing it. It's karaoke at that point. Good point. I feel like if you are going to cover a song, unless you change it infrastructurally and make it coming from your voice, you are doing a disservice to that song. Like, you know, it's like painting over someone's graffiti or something like that. It's like honor the song by not just copying the recording of it, do your own version of it and let the lyrics sing in a new way and let that melody sing in a new way. So that's what I really was attempting with that covers EP was just to try and truly spin all of these songs as much as possible. Oh, you did it. Everyone should listen to it. I love the cake. I love the rethink of the cake. I love cake, <laughs> but you, I, I love cake in general, but also the band Who doesn't cake. Love I cake. love what yeah. you did with the yeah. cake track. So ev everyone should be listening to Thief. We'll be right back after Steve and I try to sell you on some real and not so real products. Hey, Steve. Hey, Diana. Let me guess. Uh, this is a fake ad for side door access. You've been plugging them since the Sarah Sleen episode. Steve, come on. Are you saying I recycle my material? I'm offended. All right. I'm sorry. Carry on. Hey, listeners. Is your name Doug? This is weirdly specific. More importantly, are you a guy named Doug who has a backyard? Uh, I, see where, I see where this is going now. If you answered yes to these two questions, then listen up. Side Door Access needs you because musicians, comedians, and artists need to have a Doug in every city. So this is a fake ad for Side Door Access then? This is a fake ad for every Doug in every city across Canada because Doug's backyards could help 100,000 artists make $100,000 a year. Doug better have a pretty big backyard then. All of them better. So be a good Doug. Join Side Door Access and host a musician, comedian, or other performing artist. I'm Steve Patterson, and as a comedian who does shows on Side Door Access, I approve this message. Why'd you say that? I didn't write that. Improv is a performing art too, Diana. Fair enough. Don't forget the improv, people, Doug. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs. 
than medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the show through a side door, because why not? Okay, we have to get to quick questions. Quick questions. Dan, I don't want you to think too much about this, all right? These are just quick ones, okay? Your three favorite venues to perform at in Canada. Go. The Vogue. Massey Hall. Uh, the Danforth. There it is. I knew it. It's because of our connection at the Danforth, right? That's what put it over the That's edge. It. I was thinking of you the whole time. Really, I was thinking of you at the Vogue, too. <laughs> I, I've only played it once, I think. Who would you rather have dinner with and why? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, President Joe Biden, or Queen Elizabeth? Oof. I'm going to go queen. The queen, eh? I'm going to go queen on this. Well, is it because you don't yeah, think she would I finish will... your food and you would get the leftovers? Why is it? Yeah, I want the, <laughs> I want the last bite of that hot dog. Um, <laughs> you take it the queen for hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's probably just because we watched The Crown recently. And uh, the idea that she has sort of seen so many leaders come and go is really interesting to me. I don't actually, I mean, not that I even agree that we should, there should be any monarchy. I think that it's kind of fascinating, kind of ridiculous. If you were to start up a band right now, what would you name it? Ooh, I've been thinking uh, the phrase born old is kind of cool. <laughs> I like that. I like born old. But it also kind of sounds like barn owl when you say it quickly. So I, think I, that's a, I think that's an advantage for the logo, certainly. Yeah. Best advice you can give to husbands who have screwed up somehow and must make it up to their spouse? <laughs> Win the battle, not the war. Oh, man. That is deep. And by winning the battle, I don't mean actually winning anything. I just trying to find some semblance of contentment. And that will only happen if you uh, admit that your wife is right like 90% of the time. Buddy, you're a wise man. I knew you would be. I think that's a pretty good title for a song, by the way, if you're working on anything right now. Win the battle, not the war. 90% of the no, time. Not that, yeah. And the win the battle, not the <laughs> war, not 90% of the time. Okay. These are the last two. The Canadian star system is? An oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Being the next door neighbor to the United States is like? Oh, I saw. What's the great? It's like, uh, it's like living above a meth lab or something. <laughs> uh, I, 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 don't, I, I can't claim that. That was another comedian's yes. joke. That I just did a cover of. Oh, there it is. <laughs> right on brand. The thief, Dan Mangan. All right. <laughs> Dan, would you please do us the honor of giving a quick heartfelt introduction to the guest you're bringing us today? So my guest is one of my favorite living artists. She's also my neighbor. She lives two doors down. I knew of her as I was kind of growing up because my sister listened to her music. I'm so glad that she's become a peer as well as an idol. I wish the whole world knew her art and her work. And uh, it gives me great pleasure to bring forth the wonderful Veda Hilly. Yay! Hi, Veda! Yay! Hello! Hi, everybody. This has been like listening to the best live podcast. I've just been sitting here listening to you go all over the place. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been a wander. We've been wandering. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Such a pleasure. 
the British Columbia, it's, I, I said, well, Diana said we're bringing on Veda and, and Diana was like, well, everyone, everyone in BC knows Veda. She's a, a legend. I'm like, yes, I know that. We want to help expand it. And I know that you guys have a pretty unique origin story, you and Dan. Yes. Well, so Dan's sister, Kate, was a friend and also was my internet soldier in the early days. I believe Kate set me up with my Hotmail account that I still have <laughs> because it's going to be cool It's coming again. back. Hotmail's coming back. <laughs> it's the cassette of email. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and after we'd worked together a few years, Kate gave me the, the cassette of her little brother. She said, my little brother made a, made a cassette. You want to listen to it? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, it's really nice and didn't think about it again because I'm not very smart. <laughs> but then I, I think what happened- It also, to be honest, wasn't very good. I think that that's probably worth mentioning. <laughs> she was trying really hard not to say that, Dan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I really, uh, honestly, I think I, I was like, yeah, it's, it's not going anywhere. But, um, but then- <laughs> I love it. Luckily- luckily i owed kate a whack of money Mm. because i believe she fronted money for some tour t-shirts that didn't end up selling i still have quite a few of them in the shed actually (laughs) i should make a quilt and give them to her anyway i would i would get some money and so she asked if instead of paying her back if i would play on your first record am i right that that was how that worked or did you even know about that and so i know i did not know about this This arrangement i did not know about this is your life (laughs) that those that there was this was an arranged marriage. I just thought I was, you know, uh, it was it was my second record. The first one had been out for a while, and I was working on the second one. And I had this song, and I was like, I just think Veda's voice would be so great on this. And so I, I, I reached. I remember reaching out, and clearly my sister had, you know, kind of gone and done some arranging. But I remember reaching out, and you were kind enough to say yes. But I did like the song, just for the record. I was not a total idiot because <laughs> right, and and I, you know, I, I had grown. There was some growth yeah. in between mm-hmm. these these times, and then so when it came to a month before we were recording, Veda had her son Anders, and so she was, you know, in newborn world. And of course, I, I it was just pre kids for me. I had no idea what that actually meant in terms of how messed up your world is. And so we're proceeding, and then like the morning of the recording, she texts and she's like, "I just broke my finger." Pulling on my boot, and I have pregnancy brain. It was actually taking off my socks. <laughs> taking off your socks. <laughs> careful, and everyone. I, Be careful. And I, and I remember saying, well, which hand is it? She said it was her, was it, it was your... Right hand. Your right hand. Yeah. I said, well, can, can you still play with your left? <laughs> and so to this day, if you will notice on the song, The Indie Queens Are Waiting, there is only one hand of piano playing <laughs> at any given time. It is just... A monotone, like, you know, sort of like one hand melody thing. And it's so crazy because if you think about how people play piano, they just naturally put two hands on and they start playing. And that's how most piano is is done. And in this case, it is a very unique recording and it's perfect for the song. And it couldn't have happened any other way. But this solo one hand melody piano, it it made the song. You made the song. You made it great. I love that you were playing Hurt. That is a true Canadian story right there. (laughs) That's right. You just go to the gig. And I remember your your wife, Kirsten, were you married at that point? We were not married. No. Not married, but uh, she held Anders, who was like four weeks old. Wow. And I just remember, and we were recording in this old mansion in Shaughnessy yeah. that you I had somehow this had access to. It was so spooky and great. Yeah, it was crazy. It, it, this friend Julian and his dad had, like, I think he like at one point had owned like the most hot house tomatoes share or something like that. <laughs> and so he... I mean, he had this 
absurd mansion in Shaughnessy. And he was just, I used to work with this guy at the Fifth Avenue Cinema. We used to sling popcorn together. And he was like making these cool songs in his like home studio. And so we started recording at his house. And so I brought Veda over there. And it's, it is like this big, beautiful, spooky, old kind of like wooden mansion. It was crazy. I just had a quick memory now, which is that actually, and now I remember that I went and did the sessions and had a great time and got to sing on Indie Queens too, of course, which was a huge, wonderful thing that has stretched on in my life. I still get recognized on the street from my voice from that song, which is really a, a pleasant way to get recognized. And then after that is when Kate forgave my loan. <laughs> just letting you know that i small went in, but important details went in yeah. with a good an open heart it wasn't yeah. it wasn't mercenary <laughs> so this was this was not a godfather situation there was no horse heads it's important in canadian entertainment to have someone in your family with account receivables because that's gonna you're gonna need that at some point especially as a yeah. business owner now let me jump to this quickly veda you are a, a one-of-a-kind musician and performer you have classical training when you do a performance, it is truly performance art. It's not singing. It's not just singing, I should say. I'm sorry. It's it's a full-on performance of complicated music. Complicated is right. Yeah. Thank N- you. True, right? True. It's it's not yeah, uh, not true. very many people could do what you do. Now, when you listen to a uh, a mainstream song that is not as as complicated, but gets this immense play and popularity. And I'm not I'm not talking about Dan here because Dan has a unique kind of poetry and brings his his music is also complicated. It's not mainstream, although he gets mainstream hits because of his uh, good looks. Yeah. <laughs> when you hear a mainstream pop song, what, what goes through your head or do you not listen? Do you not listen to that? Do you think it's a different animal? Oh, no, I listen to tons of pop music and I, I listen to all kinds of things. And I, I love all kinds of things. And people say that, but it really is true. I wonder, people always say they don't listen to country, but that's not true. I love country. Yeah, country's great. Anyway, I like all kinds of things. And just because my brain spits out things that are a bit more complex, I actually don't know that that's the best thing about my music. <laughs> I feel like sometimes it's better when, when, I, when I can bypass that impulse and then the other thing about modern pop music is the production is so fascinating. And that's where the complexity is often. And once you start being able to hear the interplay between the 808 and the bass and the crazy keyboard line, and then the sped up vocals that everybody uses now, like it's just so much interesting stuff that you can easily occupy a nasty old brain like mine with, with almost anything. Plus music is just, you know, music is a link to the heavens. So any way you can get up there is good for me. Well, that's that's very kind and, and well said. But I mean, I, I often wonder about people that have widespread musical chops that could arrange a piece for an entire orchestra and play that piece, whether you feel like, oh, we're going to put this out there or I will focus on this one, one stream of the music in, instead of that. Well, I think one of the things with me is that I just have never been able to focus on one stream and I move move all over the place and it keeps me interested. And I think that might be why I have uh, my particular very deep and lonely niche. But um, <laughs> but it's ser- it served me, right? I've, there was a great New York Times article about Sinead O'Connor recently. Did anyone read yeah. that interview? So exciting. Mm. And she talks about the moment ripping up the picture of the Pope and its course has been, that's been flagged as the moment where her career took a dive bomb, Mm. which uh, I don't actually remember that. I still just listen to her all the time back in the day. 
But she says that that was exactly the right thing for her career because she was going to the stratosphere of pop stardom and she didn't isn't built for that and that she was able to go back to the place she was built for, which is continuing to be interested in music and making it on her own terms and being able to rip up any frickin' photograph she wants. <laughs> so that's what I'm aiming for. I can, rip a photograph. I can rip up a photo for you right please, now. Please, please. <laughs> which one is it? Which yeah, one is it? It's, it's Archie Adams. Oh, take that. Yeah. Take that, Riverdale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jughead's been wanting to do that for years. <laughs> You've pissed off no. the CW crowd now. Uh, not yeah. to mention, <laughs> my son is going to come home and wonder what. I love that you part. did that. I love that you it did that. It was art, honey. It was art. It was a podcast thing. Let's let's talk quickly about collaboration. You collaborate obviously with lots of different types of artists, especially when you're when you're traversing the world between classical and other theater productions, and then your own music. So. What do you look for in a collaborator other than they might be the younger brother of a friend of yours? <laughs> yeah, I've got to be a little more alert. To that. <laughs> I think the main thing for me always in music and in life is enthusiasm and sort of a bright interest in things. That's what that's what attracts me in people to work with or just people to hang out with. Dan, what about you? What do you look for in a collaborator? I, I like I like it when somebody's work isn't it, it, it unlocks little hidden truths, you know, like I think like a great song exemplifies something that's hard to articulate, but you know exactly what it is. That to me is sort of like the source. That's like when a song, when I, when I have a, a swirling thing in my head, I know that I have a song in the works when I've isolated a feeling or a color or a thing that is hard to describe. And so in other people's work, it's the same thing because I think that that's where like the the honesty comes out. I think that in music, there's a lot of sort of like placating. There's a lot of like, I'm writing a sad song because sad songs are how music can feel sometimes or, you know, it's just tropes and, and there's various sort of like go-to lyrical formats and things. And so, I like it when people break those and I like it when people are able to, and it doesn't have to be, you know, complicated or simple. It could just be, or just be something that makes me look at them and go, I believe you. Like, I don't feel like you are putting on a mask. I don't feel like you are pretending anything. I feel like you are exhibiting a little piece of your soul into this little medium, whatever it is. I don't want to gush too hard, but when I saw Veda's show Little Volcano back before the pandemic last at the Push Festival last January, I realized it had been a while since, you know, since I had been at a show and felt like I was witnessing somebody's uh, who was able to articulate the innermost truths of themselves into a format where we could all as the audience experience it and see a little bit of it in ourselves. And that in doing so, it makes everyone feel less alone, right? Like that's, that's, that's why Veda sends up a smoke signal. And that's why somebody else sees that smoke signal and goes, ah, shit, I feel the same way. And so both parties now are connected cosmically and, and are less alone, less existential dread. That's, like that's that's the meat. That's where I want to get to. I, I remember crying like probably six or seven times throughout that show, mm -hmm. and afterwards just giving Veda like the biggest hug and being, like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and 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 I think we need that stuff. Like we need it so badly, and when we don't have it for a while, we kind of forget that we needed it, and then you have that experience where art makes you feel connected to the great glue of existence. Dan, you are a good man. And thank you for the segue. So good. He's a good man, isn't he? 
so good at talking. <laughs> so good at <laughs> talking about stuff with words. Uh, I will take that segue that he has so generously given me and continue the conversation, Veda, about Little Volcano, if I could, because this is something yes, that we, we want everyone to see, because every review I've heard has been similar to Dan's in that it's been such a moving experience for whoever's going, and different emotions. There's laughs, there's tears. Can you tell us about Little Volcano? Let's start maybe with where the name came from. Well, the name comes from a concert review of mine in Hamburg in the mid-90s, where they called me uh, Das Kleine Volcan, because I used to play really, really I was very uh, energetic in my early youth. And I was like, you know, like a little Jerry Lee Lewisy, I guess, like legs, legs and arms akimbo, <laughs> just playing real, playing real hard. So, uh, and I loved that. I loved that description. I was happy to have it. And so then when I was in the Scrappy Bitch Tour in the late 90s, <laughs> which was me and Oh Susanna and Kenny Starr, we went on tour like for like four or five solid tours. We had a great time being Scrappy Bitches and we all had superhero alter egos and mine was the Lil Volcano. So I'm nice. predating the whole yes. Lil Baby, <laughs> Lil Peep thing that's going on now. I was, I was there for the show Little Volcano now. You know, I turned... 50 a couple of years ago and you and you automatic I also and I also survived cancer so you start to look at things you know you start to think yeah what have I done where am I going aren't I lucky to still be here and so this was that that was the impulse for this show is an autobiographical look at all that half a century of stuff which by the way I was trying to make funny I tried so hard to make it a funny show <laughs> um and I think it has a little funny in it but it mostly it makes me well cry. you know what <laughs> It's okay. You know, not all the funnies have to be a laugh a minute. I think that when you build up a performance like that, that's based on genuine experiences, you can have people run the gamut of emotions and it makes those highs a lot higher when you, when you bring them down a bit. I tell lots of comedians, don't, don't peak too early. <laughs> if, you, yeah. if you start out real funny, there's nowhere to go from there. Diana, were you going to bring something up? No, I'm just nodding in agreement of that. Like, it, it, you know, you need the tension in order to have the release. Yes, and I, they, I feel like making people cry has always been a bit of a superpower of mine. But then <laughs> I feel like I can sucker punch them with a little bit of funny if I'm lucky, and that's you know that's often a mark of a good show for me if I manage to because the comedy is usually improvised in like my patter. If I can make people laugh, I just feel like I nailed it. So hats off to you, funny people, because <laughs> I just I do kind of think it's the it's the height it's the height of hardness. Well, I mean, that's very kind of you, but having heard you play and seen your performances, I don't think we're really in the same league. Like, I'm making fun of bodily fluids and you're playing Bach uh, flawlessly. So let's uh, let's just be real here. You, you've also, I read one of the, a line from one of the reviews of your performance, uh, which is a obviously because it's so bio, autobiographical, it's a review of you and you were described as- yeah. Like Patti Smith and Gertrude Stein having drinks on a train, which I think is great. What, is that is that accurate? I will take it. I don't know. I mean, I would love that if that was if I was anything like that. I would be so happy. So I'm just I'm taking that and putting it in the file of things that have been said about me that make me happy. I love the specificity of on a train. On a train, yeah. Like, where does that come not, from? Not in a cafe in Brussels, but no. on a train. No, because you're, you're moving. You're a little tipsy. I, I got it. Yeah. I believe that quote was from Hillary Peach. I just, I only really invite 
poet to my shows. That's a great tip. Yeah, this yeah. review is so well written. I don't know what it means, but it's really it rhymes. It's great. <laughs> so I am. I'm hoping Little Volcano does finally go on tour. It was, of course, supposed to be on tour last right. year, even though. I feel like my pandemic went fine, partially through the grace of Dan Mangan, who dragged me kicking and streaming. streaming. Kicking and streaming <laughs> is streaming. also a good title. Yeah, Write that down. <laughs> kicking and streaming. Kicking and streaming on a side door where I actually had great connections with audiences through this crazy time. I was sad that this show that I we worked on with, I worked on a theater replacement. My good friends, Michael and Jamie made it with me. We're so ready to to bring it to people. So hopefully in 2022. I certainly hope so. Everyone, everyone needs to see it, but you can also get some of the music from it online now to get a bit mm-hmm. of, paint a bit of the picture. Yeah, I made a, I made a record of it actually during the pandemic. So I got to go over to Kelch and play the piano a bunch as part of my quarantine trip which was very helpful and so i recorded some stuff over there and and so a solo record called little volcano came out last fall people can get that and it'll hopefully hold them over till they can see you live now i read an article (laughs) in the georgia strait by your friend marcus yusuf which appeared recently to when we're talking now talking about how because he's a playwright he put this very dramatically but put it well that vancouver (laughs) is bleeding artists and toronto is going through much of the same right now because they're being priced out of housing. Artists are having to leave the city and it's going to leave a void. It's going to leave a void in cities that have a big population, but a lacking arts and culture scene that leaves a real void in cities. So I don't know the solution, but I thought that the term bleeding artists, you hear you always hear of the brain drain uh, of people. And you know, this show is all about how do we keep our artists in Canada? How do we support them a little more? And then if you look at it more locally, when you have a city that's got great artists in it, like Vancouver or Toronto, you hear of the artists flocking there, but it's not necessarily the case if they get priced out of there. It's so tricky because, you know, being able to be in a community with other artists, I think is pretty integral to staying excited and being pushed, like having colleagues who push you to do something else or help you collaborate and all that stuff. So Mark Marcus pointed out that I live in rental housing, which is not a secret and that it's therefore insecure. I'm actually pretty okay in Vancouver and I've got a nice situation and I'll be okay. I worry more about the younger artists who like I do I was able to live in a cheap place all through my twenties and eat only oatmeal so that I could devote myself completely to writing songs and figuring out my how I did that. And I feel like people have to have extra jobs and it's it's tricky. It's tricky. I'm excited in the pandemic that we've gotten more regional, though, and I feel like that might end up being a good thing. Like my husband built a stage in the in our back air, oh, backyard. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and so now we can finally start putting on little neighborhood shows and things like that, even though that won't be a moneymaker. I feel excited about playing music for people in the immediate mm-hmm. vicinity and simultaneously broadcasting shows to the whole world i'm not really making a ton of sense but i like no, i think you are. some <laughs> things are feeling smaller and more personal and i feel like maybe we'll be able to to ride that into a different well model. i think in a way you know we were talking about side door access a lot obviously with dan because it's his project that idea was very organic it was like why should we have to play these large venues 
to be able to do a show somewhere, let's take it to people. Let's take it to Doug. <laughs> Every city <laughs> needs right. a Doug. Every city needs a Doug. <laughs> it's a very true statement. And now with this extra element of online that everyone has had to embrace during the pandemic, because it's the only thing we were allowed to embrace. Give me a drum roll on that, Diana. Thanks. Great. Good, good high tech on this show. We've got these online opportunities that it's, it's in a way never been easier for artists to get their art out there. Now, monetizing it is another thing, but getting it out there is now a bigger possibility. Totally. I do worry, though, that, that younger artists assume that you have to do it for free for a long time. I don't like it. I don't like it. Because money is very useful. <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, wrap it up with you now because I know that we've taken a lot of your time already. Veda, I want to ask you the last couple of questions that I asked Dan as well. Please. Oh no, I I was scared. I'm scared of these oh, questions. Just, I'm not good. I'm I'm not good at this sort of hard. No, no, and fast. no. It's just it's just these last two. We just ask everyone. We love the perspective, and I especially love your perspective. So just complete these sentences for me, if you would. Okay. The okay. Canadian star system is. Confusing? <laughs> Can you make sure yeah. there's a question mark Oh, no, on you that? got it. You captured it in the performance of that. Absolutely. And being the next door neighbor to the United States is like... I'm not going to be as harsh as Dan. It's, it's a big, scary neighbor, but also they have some of the best kids I've ever hung out with. There's been so many times I've been so happy to live next to the state. So I know we're all we're all into the fear right now. But come on, don't you want to don't you want to drive down to Chicago? Come on, you know you uh, do. Well, I, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not about <laughs> saying we don't want to go to the states. I'm saying I don't want to lose all of our artists to the states. We need a bit of a home right. system here. Oh, totally, completely. Thank you so much, Veda Hilly, for joining us today, and to Dan Mangan. It's been such a pleasure having the BC connection on the show. This is where Diana's roots are from. All praise BC. <laughs> totally my our pleasure. Thank Thanks, you so Steve. much, Steve. Thanks, Diana. Great to be here. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to advertise in our show, go to apostrophepodcasts.ca and click Advertise with Us. The Canadian Star System is produced by Diana Francis and Steve Patterson in association with the Apostrophe Podcast Network. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit our website at canadianstarsystem.ca where you can find links to their work and their socials. Speaking of socials, you can follow at Canadian Star Pod and at Apostrophe Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Our editor and sound technician is Donovan Deschner of Fracture Ephemer Productions. Music by Mark Camilleri of Imagine Sound Studios. Special thanks to Terry O'Reilly, Debbie O'Reilly, Callie O'Reilly, and Nancy Patterson, who is an honorary O'Reilly. And since you're doing such a good job of listening to the credits, there's a bonus clip for you after Steve sings it out. So give it up to these good because our self-promotion sucks. And if they all went away, we sure would miss them. The Canadian Star System. Just a quick question. Which one of your children is your favorite and why? <laughs> well, it's this 1957 uh, J45 <laughs> yeah. behind me. Um, come on. I, you know, I know, buddy. I was just yeah. trying to trip you up. <laughs>